Our scripture reading this afternoon is in the fourth of the Minor Prophets, Obadiah. We've considered already the message found in Hosea, Joel, and Amos. Now we turn to Obadiah. text for the sermon will consist of verses 17 through 21, although we will draw from the entire book, but we will focus on those last verses of the book. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom, we have heard a rumor from the Lord, and an ambassador is sent among the heathen, arise ye, and let us rise up against her in battle. Behold, I have made thee small among the heathen. Thou art greatly despised. The pride of thine heart hath deceived thee, thou that dwellest in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, that saith in his heart, Who shall bring me down to the ground? Though thou exalt thyself as the eagle, and though thou set thy nest among the stars, thence will I bring thee down, saith the Lord. If thieves come to thee, if robbers by night, how art thou cut off? Would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up? All the men of thy confederacy have brought thee even to the border. The men that were at peace with thee have deceived thee and prevailed against thee. They that eat thy bread have laid a wound under thee. There is none understanding in him. Shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of the mount of Esau? And thy mighty men, O Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter for thy violence against thy brother Jacob. Shame shall cover thee, and thou shalt be cut off forever. In the day that thou stoodest on the other side, in the day that the strangers carried away captive his forces, and foreigners entered into his gates, and cast lots upon Jerusalem, even thou wast as one of them. But thou shouldest not have looked on the day of thy brother, in the day that he became a stranger. Neither shouldest thou have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither shouldest thou have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Thou shouldest not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Yea, thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor have laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. Neither shouldest thou have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither shouldest thou have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of distress. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. For as ye have drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall all the heathen drink continually. Yea, they shall drink, and they shall swallow down, 
and they shall be as though they had not been. And this is the beginning of our text for the sermon. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions, and the house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them. And there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. And they of the south shall possess the mount of Esau, and they of the plain the Philistines. And they shall possess the fields of Ephraim, and the fields of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. And the captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. And the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. And saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, Obadiah was a prophet of Jehovah who announced the destruction of the nation of Edom when they gloried over the fall of Jerusalem. Now, there has been a lot of debate about when Obadiah wrote this book, and scholars of the Bible are not in agreement. But when I look at this book and when I compare it to the rest of Scripture, it seems clear enough to me that Obadiah wrote at the time when Jerusalem fell, at the time when God was chastising his people in the southern kingdom, and particularly Jerusalem, by sending upon them the Babylonians to sack the city, to burn the city, and to carry away captives into Babylon. If you read the book again, I think you will be convinced as well that Obadiah was laboring at that time. After all, that was the time, if we search all the scriptures, when the Edomites rejoiced and gloried in the downfall of Israel. In Psalm 137, verse 7, to use only one example, a psalm that was written by a God-fearing Jew in captivity in Babylon. He speaks about sitting by the rivers of Babylon and weeping over their captivity. He also writes this in verse 7, Remember, O Lord, the children of Edom in the day of Jerusalem, who said, Raise it, raise it, even to the foundation thereof. The Jews were crying out to God from captivity to remember what Edom did to them, in the day when they were carried off into captivity. God did remember the cruelty of Edom, and he revealed to his prophet Obadiah, as well as to Jeremiah and Ezekiel, and you can find a passage in Jeremiah that is very, very similar to the first part of Obadiah. God revealed to these three prophets his intention to destroy Edom for exalting themselves as the eagle, and setting their nest among the stars. And we read in verse 4 that God said, 
Thence will I bring thee down. Now many modern readers of this book find it distasteful. And so they dismiss it as unworthy of a God of love. They find in this book a God of vengeance, a God who is vindictive, a God who takes revenge, and they can't harmonize that with their God of love. But we who believe that all of the scriptures come from the one true God find great comfort in this book of the Bible as well. Because we find here, like we find elsewhere, the promise of our God to whom vengeance belongs to destroy the enemies of the church who glory in our calamities and to deliver us through a Savior who will come up in Mount Zion and establish the kingdom forever. I call your attention to a prophecy of Edom's doom and Israel's salvation. Notice, first of all, the looming destruction of Edom. Secondly, the great salvation for Israel. And finally, the saviors upon Mount Zion. Verse 1 of the book shows us that this book has to do with Edom. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. So the first question is, who was Edom? Well, Obadiah makes that plain to us too. If you were paying close attention, maybe you caught the fact that he speaks of Edom as synonymous with Esau, because he was. Edom was another name for Esau. And we know from Bible history that Esau was the firstborn son of Isaac and Rebekah, Isaac the son of Abraham. His firstborn son was Esau, but Esau was a twin. And his brother was Jacob. Esau and Jacob were twin brothers born from Isaac and Rebekah. And you might remember when Rebekah was pregnant, she didn't know there were twins in there, and she felt this strange struggle going on in her womb. And so she asked the Lord what it meant. And the Lord told her, Genesis 25, verse 23, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels. And the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. The two nations that came from Jacob and Esau were the nations of Israel from Jacob and the nation of Edom from Esau. Although Esau was the firstborn and the elder of the twins, God said that the elder would serve the younger. Esau will serve Jacob. Edom will serve Israel. Because, as we find in other scriptures, Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Although both Jacob and Esau were born and raised in a believing home and had believing parents who taught them the ways of the Lord, Jacob alone, by the grace of God, came to embrace the promises of the covenant, whereas Esau despised them. He sold his birthright for a bowl of soup, and he forsook the Lord, he left the church, and he went out from the promised land into Mount Seir, to the east of the Dead Sea, and it was there where his descendants turned into the nation of Edom. Now just as Esau hated his brother Jacob, 
because God gave to Jacob the birthright blessing, so also the nation of Edom always hated the nation of Israel. They hated them from the moment they came out of Egypt and wandered through the wilderness. Edom would not let Israel pass through their land. And they hated them after Israel entered the land of Canaan. Because God gave to them this land flowing with milk and honey, God gave them riches and power. And so Edom was envious and hated Israel. And also because, as Obadiah also points out in verse 2, God made Edom small among the heathen and greatly despised. Edom was always under the foot of Israel. Israel was always dominant over Edom. And especially in the time of King David, Israel dominated Edom. Now you have to fast forward in the history of Israel to the time when the northern kingdom has gone away into captivity because of their sinfulness, and the southern kingdom has also developed in its sinfulness to the point that now God must chastise them severely. And as a father, he took in his hand the rod of Babylon, and he smote the nation of Judah with that rod to chasten them for forsaking him and turning to idols. The Babylonians came and surrounded the city of Jerusalem and carried off captives into Babylon. While that was happening, the Edomites were watching. The Edomites were standing, as it were, on the mountaintops of their land, Mount Seir. From the clefts of the rocks where they lived, they were peering out over the Jordan River, as it were, and seeing Jerusalem over there, under siege, under attack, and the Jews being killed, slaughtered, robbed, carried off into captivity. And as they watched that horrible event take place, they were laughing. They were shouting and rejoicing. They were glorying in the downfall of God's people. They were not weeping over the fall of Jerusalem. They were not weeping for their brothers. After all, Jacob and Esau were brothers. Israel and Edom were brother nations. They were relatives, but there was no weeping. There was no grief for their brothers. There was only glee and glorying and gloating over the fall of their rival brother nation. In fact, we read in the book of Obadiah, verses 10 through 14, that the Edomites didn't just stand there from a distance and watch and rejoice and celebrate, but they crossed the, the river Jordan. They went to Jerusalem and they took the spoils they laid their filthy hands on the riches that were left behind, and they actually assisted the Babylonians in carrying God's people off into captivity. This was the occasion for the book of Obadiah. God raised up Obadiah, as well as Jeremiah and Ezekiel, to denounce Edom for their cruelty and their proud boasting over the fall of his people. God announced through his prophets that he would take vengeance against Edom for their wickedness. He would destroy Edom. He would cut them off. He would wipe them off the face of the earth. We read in verse 4, Edom, you who have exalted yourself like an eagle and set yourself up among the stars, I will bring you down. He says in verse 10, I will cut you off forever. 
He says in verse 15, The day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. As thou hast done, it shall be done unto thee. Thy reward shall return upon thine own head. And we read in our text, The house of Jacob itself and the house of Joseph will become a fire and a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. God reveals that in the future, he will make the nation of Edom like a pile of kindling, a pile of stubble, of little pieces of wood. And Jacob and Joseph would be like the fire that would burn and consume them until there is nothing remaining. This was a prophecy of great doom and destruction upon these enemies of God's people. Was this prophecy fulfilled? Do we know from other scriptures that God did what he said he would do? Did God cut off Edom forever? If you turn to the book of Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, read the first few verses of the first chapter. There we find this. God says to the Jews, his people, I have loved you, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau, and laid his mountains and his heritage waste for the dragons of the wilderness. Whereas Edom saith, We are impoverished, but we will return and build the desolate places. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, They shall build, but I will throw down. In the days of Malachi, which were one to two hundred years after Obadiah, Malachi speaks of it as a fact of history. God has laid Edom waste for the dragons of the wilderness. And there's the evidence in Scripture that God fulfilled his prophecy. Probably through the Babylonians, the same people who took the Jews into captivity, the Edomites were also crushed and laid waste and scattered and forced to flee out of their land. But the Babylonians did not fully cut them off. The prophecy of the text says that also Jacob and Joseph would become a fire. The Israelites themselves would be used to burn up the stubble of Edom. So although we don't find the record of that history in the Bible, we know that it must have taken place. That sometime after that prophecy, the Israelites themselves, in warfare, crushed the Edomites. We know that the Edomites did try to rebuild their nation out of the desolation. But again, in the intertestamentary period between the Old and New Testament, the Maccabees were a Jewish people who rose up and again crushed the Edomites. Edom tried to rise up again out of the ashes, but finally the Romans, when they came, they wiped them out once and for all. God kept his promise. He cut them off forever. Where is the nation of Edom today? Where are the Edomites today? There is no nation in the world that you can point to and say, there it is, there's Edom, because they've been utterly destroyed and scattered among the nations. 
What is the significance of this prophecy for us, though? The significance is that the word of God to Obadiah assures us that God will take vengeance on his enemies and ours, the enemies of his church, and he will destroy them. The message of Obadiah is not so much that God will take vengeance on the enemies far away from the church. Obadiah is not concerned with Babylon or Assyria over there or Egypt down there or India over there. He's speaking of Edom, which lived right next door to Israel. They were next door neighbors and they were relatives by blood. Edom represents all those people who in their past generations were connected to the covenant. Remember, Jacob and Esau grew up in the same family, in the same sphere of the covenant. They were taught the same ways of the Lord. But Esau departed, and his ancestors became the Edomites. The Edomites represent all those people who live close to the church, who are all around us, who in the past, their ancestors were connected to the church. Their past forefathers were believers in the true God, but they apostatized. They forsook the Lord, and they have become close relatives, but bitter enemies of the church of Jesus Christ. So that when the church of Christ is chastened by the Lord, have we not been chastened in these past years? Are we not still going through a time of chastening like the Jews carried off into Babylon? The Edomites represent all those people who, looking from their vantage point, take delight in the sufferings of the church, the afflictions of God's people, and they gloat and glory in it. The book of Obadiah assures us that God, to whom vengeance belongs, will destroy them for their sin. We should remember, too, regarding the significance that behind the prophecy of Obadiah is the eternal decrees of God. Before the foundation of the world, God has planned out all of history, and he has also planned out who will be his church and who will be the reprobate. What was true in the days of Obadiah is still true today. Romans 9, verse 13. Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. The Apostle Paul points out in Romans 9, Hath not the potter power over the clay? Of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor. What if God, willing to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering? the vessels of wrath fitted to destruction. The apostle is teaching that God has a sovereign and eternal decree of predestination. And in that decree, God has determined who will be a Jacob and who will be an Esau. Who will be a vessel of mercy and who will be a vessel of wrath. Jacob represents all those who are faithful to the Lord, who are faithful to his covenant, who embrace the promises of the covenant and who put their faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, all of God's elect. 
Esau represents those who were once connected to the covenant, but who forsook it, who apostatized, and who now tread underfoot the blood of the Son of God as a thing of no account, and who bitterly hate and oppose God's church. God will punish the enemies of his church. The elder shall serve the younger. Esau shall serve Jacob. Edom shall serve Israel. The vessels of wrath are there for the good of the church. We can easily understand the message of Obadiah if we just put it in very practical day-to-day terms. When, as little children in the house, we got chastised by our parents for a sin that we committed, our father takes us aside and he's giving us a spanking. And one of our brothers, in his cruelty, is watching and gloating and glorying in our chastisement. It is a relief for us to know that as we're being chastened and our brother is over there gloating and boasting over us, that our father is a man who is just and fair. And he will also have to chasten now our brother for his sin, for his pride. How much greater of a comfort then is it to know that as we, the church, are being chastened by our father and his love for us, and the wicked Edomites are around us, jeering at us, that God promises to take vengeance. He does not ignore the wickedness of our enemies, those who in the day of our calamity gloat over us. So that, first of all, is the message of Obadiah. But in the second place, Obadiah also prophesies that this destruction of Edom involves a great salvation for the house of Jacob. I'm referring to verse 17. But upon Mount Zion shall be deliverance, and there shall be holiness, and the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. Obadiah is carrying forward the message of the prophet Joel before him. Joel 2 verse 23 That prophet who lived before Obadiah, he prophesied that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved in the day of the Lord. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall be deliverance, as the Lord hath said. That was Joel. Now Obadiah, knowing that prophecy, carries it forward and says, Yes, in the day of the Lord there shall be deliverance. There shall be salvation for all who call upon the name of the Lord. For the Lord hath spoken it. Obadiah is given the prophetic vision of the future. He sees the future. And he sees that it's going to be a bright and glorious future for the house of Jacob. He sees that there will be deliverance in Mount Zion. These Jews have just been carried away from Zion into Babylon, but Obadiah sees they will be brought back. God will deliver them from the chains of their captivity and bring them back to their homeland, bring them back to Zion. 
so that there in Mount Zion once again will be the returned captives, the returned exiles. Obadiah sees that there will be holiness in Mount Zion once again. Zion has been destroyed by the fires of the Babylonian armies, the temple brought down to rubble. But Obadiah sees that Zion will be built up again, the temple will be restored, and the holiness of the presence of God will be there again in Mount Zion. He sees a bright future for the house of Jacob, which is simply a reference to the nation of Israel and to the house of Joseph. He speaks of the house of Joseph in verse 18, because if you remember, Joseph was one of the 12 sons of Jacob, and God gave to him a double portion in the land. God gave to his sons Ephraim and Manasseh an inheritance in the land of Canaan, a double portion, and those two tribes became leaders in the northern kingdom. So the house of Jacob, the house of Joseph, those are just other ways of saying the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel shall be saved, shall be delivered, and God shall make them a fire and a flame. That is, God will give them power again, power to destroy their enemies, to defend themselves, to fight against Edom and re and bring them to rubble. He also says in verse 17 that the house of Jacob shall possess their possessions. What is he referring to? Well, the house of Jacob has just been dispossessed. They have just been booted out of their land. They're in captivity. But that land is their possession. God promised it to Abraham and his seed. God gave it to them through Joshua and the conquest. And now they've lost it. But Obadiah says they will possess it again. Notice how he describes that. You have to understand the geography of Palestine a little bit. In verses 19 and 20. They of the south shall possess the Mount of Esau. The south is the Negev. The Negev Desert which is located in the southern part of the southern kingdom. Still there today, of course. And the nation of Edom was directly to the east of the Negev. So he's saying the Jews who live in the south will take possession of the land of Edom. Then he says, they of the plain shall possess the Philistines. The plain was the Shephelah, a geographic region in Judah, a strip of low land, next to the mountains, and next to the coastal plain. The Philistines lived in the coastal plain, the area that is now ravaged by the war, the Gaza Strip. That's where the Philistines lived. And Obadiah says that the people of God will possess that land of the Philistines. So their land will extend westward all the way to the sea, and eastward it will take over the land of Edom, he goes on, they shall possess the fields of Ephraim and the fields of Samaria. Remember, the northern kingdom has been removed. That's where Ephraim was. That's where Samaria was. That was the heartland of the northern kingdom. Now he says, the Jews will take over that land as well. 
Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Benjamin was the tribe just north of Judah. And they always remained connected to Judah, to the southern kingdom. Benjamin shall possess Gilead. Not just the land given to Benjamin, but they will go across the Jordan River and take over the land of Gilead to the east as well. Verse 20. The captivity of this host of the children of Israel shall possess that of the Canaanites, even unto Zarephath. Zarephath was a city of the Canaanites north of the promised land, between Tyre and Sidon on the seashore. You remember, Elijah healed a widow's son there once. Now he's saying that they're going to possess the land all the way to Zarephath, to the north. And finally, the captivity of Jerusalem, which is in Sepharad, shall possess the cities of the south. Sepharad might be a reference to the city later known as Sardis, which was in Asia Minor, modern Turkey. If so, that would mean that there were Jewish exiles banished far away, far, far away to the northwest. But Obadiah says, they will come home. And they will take possession of the cities of the Negev in the south. Do you see what Obadiah is saying? He is saying that the Jews, the people of God, who have been dispossessed and scattered, who have lost their possessions and been humbled to the dust, they will once again possess all of their lands and more. They will possess an inheritance as far north and as far south, east and west, as God promised to Abraham. God fulfilled this prophecy when he brought the Jews back from Babylon after their 70 years of captivity. But it was only a partial fulfillment. And it was only a typical fulfillment. When the Jews came back from captivity... The Babylonians were no longer in power. Now the Persians are in power. But the land that they received was not much more than a province of the Persian Empire. Now after the Persians were the Greeks, and as I said earlier, the Maccabees were able to throw off the dominion of Greece for a time and restore freedom to the children of Israel for a time, but then the Romans came and subjugated them again, and they were crushed into a province of Rome after, or rather, in the Roman times, the Jewish people were finally scattered among the nations. So where is the fulfillment of the prophecy? Well, there's only a partial fulfillment, literally speaking. The greater fulfillment is spiritual. The greater fulfillment is not that in the year 1948, after World War II, after a many decades of what was called the Zionist movement, a movement that wanted to restore the Jews to their homeland, after the brutality of Hitler and the Holocaust, the worst crime against the Jews in all of history, that finally, at long last, in 1948, 
through a joint action of the United Nations, that land was restored to the Jews so that we now have an Israeli nation. I say that's not the fulfillment of the prophecy. Nor are we to find the fulfillment of verse 18 in the wars that have been happening ever since 1948 and that continue to go on today. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau for stubble, and they shall kindle in them and devour them, and there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord hath spoken it. That almost sounds like a prophecy that the Israelis are going to win these wars. Just notice the fire and the flame of their bombs that they are casting upon Gaza, that they're going to be able to win this war and take possession of their lands again and become a mighty kingdom of God. Many people think that. I'm not making any political statements from this pulpit today about how we are to view the war, whether or not to support Israel. Sure, we have many political reasons to support them. That's fine. But as far as the scriptures go and the prophecies go, We aren't to explain it that way. What then? We have to see in the prophecy of Obadiah that he's pointing to that great salvation from sin and from all our spiritual enemies that God would accomplish in the great day of the Lord and that he did accomplish in the great day of Christ and which he continues to accomplish throughout the modern age of history. This is a prophecy that God will gather back the exiles from their captivity into Mount Zion. That's all spiritual. God will gather the exiles of his elect, not just Jews, but also Gentiles, out of all the nations of the world into Mount Zion, not Jerusalem over there, but into the church. Through the work of Christ, God is gathering his people from the nations in this present time. He's bringing salvation to all those whom he loves. Jacob have I loved. Esau have I hated. Jacob represents all of his elect. Jacob represents Jews and Gentiles whom God has chosen out of all the nations. He loves Jacob. He loves his Jacob. Whether his Jacob is black or white, or brown, or red, or yellow. Whatever nation he comes from, God loves his Jacob. And God is gathering them out of the nations, one here, one there, many here, many there, gathering them into Zion, into the church. There is deliverance in Mount Zion, in the church. And God himself has come to dwell in the midst of the church. In the midst of Zion, God has come and filled Zion with holiness so that there is holiness, verse 17. It is the holy city, the new Jerusalem. And God causes his people to possess their possessions. He causes each one of his people to possess their portion of the inheritance. Just as each tribe received its inheritance, Each of us, his elect people, are given our portion. 
and that will be given to us fully in the world to come. Obadiah not only looks forward to the time when we will be delivered from all of our sufferings, all of our chastisements, when the rod of God's love no longer has to beat upon us because we're free from sin once and for all. Finally, Obadiah concludes his book with this prophecy that saviors shall come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. Obadiah, as he sees the future day of the Lord, he sees saviors. He sees that Jehovah God, the invisible, immortal, almighty God, will bring salvation through saviors. He will send, he will raise up men like the judges in the Old Testament, like the kings in the Old Testament, to wage war against their enemies and bring deliverance and freedom. These saviors, we are told, would come up on Mount Zion. That doesn't mean so much that they would climb up the mountain into Mount Zion, but it means that they would rise up out of Mount Zion. They would come from Mount Zion. They would be Jews of God's people who would save God's people. And they would judge the house of Esau, just like the judges of old. They would judge, they would rule, they would exercise dominion over Edom. God fulfilled this prophecy too. In the Old Testament, partially. He raised up Zerubbabel and Joshua to lead the children of Israel from Babylon back into the promised land and to lead them in the rebuilding of the temple. He raised up Nehemiah, the king's cupbearer in Persia, and sent him back to the land to lead the people in building up the walls of Zion. He sent prophets, Haggai, Zechariah, Malachi, and others. He raised up the Maccabees in the intertestamentary period. And through these different Godly men, he brought deliverance to his people. But all of these saviors pointed forward to the great Savior. Obadiah, like all the prophets, is pointing forward ultimately to the Messiah. The Savior of Israel, the hope of Israel. Already in Numbers 24, verses 17 and 18, God revealed this prophecy in the days of Moses when the children of Israel were encamped and they hadn't even taken the promised land yet. A star shall come up out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. And through this star, through this Messiah, Israel would triumph over Edom. Now God reveals through Obadiah that he would raise up Christ the Savior, and we know who that Savior is, the Lord Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter 1, Zacharias, the father of John the Baptist, sang these beautiful words. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he hath visited and redeemed his people, and hath raised up an horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David as he spake by the mouth of his holy prophets, which have been since the world began, 
that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all that hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant. In the birth of Jesus Christ, we have the fulfillment of Obadiah as well. Jesus is our Savior who rose up out of Jacob, from the line of Jacob. Jesus is the Savior who took upon himself all of the sins of Jacob, all of your sins and my sins. And he suffered the fire and the wrath of God's judgment that we deserve for our sins. Because Jacob have I loved, but Esau have I hated. Having loved Jacob, Jesus died for Jacob. He shed his blood for Jacob to save us from our sins. Jesus is the Savior who rose from the dead as the head of Jacob, as the head of all the elect, so that in Jesus Christ we have the hope of possessing our possessions, of receiving our inheritance, our portion in the promised land up above. Jesus is the Savior who makes Jacob a fire and a flame on the house of Edom. Jesus is the one who has ascended into heaven and received all power. And it's in Jesus that Edom is burned and destroyed. Jesus is our Savior who sits now at the right hand of God in the heavenly Mount Zion. And he will come again to judge. To judge the house of Esau. And the house of Esau will be gathered before Christ, the final judgment to face him, and he will say, Depart from me, ye workers of iniquity. But he will say to us, Come, ye blessed of my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Obadiah sees that kingdom and mentions it as his last word, The kingdom shall be the Lord's. He sees to that final perfection of the kingdom of God when Jesus comes again. The kingdom will fully come. As John sees in Revelation 11 verse 15, the kingdoms of this world shall become the kingdoms of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And as Paul writes in Philippians 2, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of the Father. What a wonderful Savior. What a wonderful kingdom. Amen. Our Father and our God, we give thanks to thee for the riches of thy word. We give thanks to thee for enabling us to explore this book of Obadiah and to see in it the comfort that is for us call upon the name of the Lord. The comfort in the midst of our afflictions, our sufferings, our chastenings. We pray that our Lord Jesus would return and that he would come quickly. That we would be redeemed from this present evil world into the kingdom which is thine.